Good morning, everyone. I'm glad you could join us on this sunny morning as we kick off our series and enjoy the journey. That's right, Mateo. When we're talking about journeys, what comes to mind is GPSs, Global Positioning Systems. I just want to know, you know, they're on your cell phones. There's Magellan. There's um, Garmin. There's all kinds of ways that we have these navigational systems. They're even in watches now. So I want to just find out how many of you, raise your hand if you've used a GPS of some sort to get you where you want to go. Oh, it's a beautiful thing. Most of us have. Okay, how many of you just admit you don't like to ask directions? You use the feel method. I feel like it's right. Oh, yeah, thank you, thank you. I've done that before. This just feels right, and I take that turn. Well, GPSs are designed to help us get where we want to go. They track our movements and help lead us to our destination. That is, it can really make us smart for our journey if we use them. Which brings me to Jared and I's not-so-smart journey in San Antonio, Texas. We picked up the rental car, didn't pay a lot of attention. We were there to host and to lead a retirement party for a man and his wife who had been wonderful pastors for many, many years. And many people had come from all over the nation to honor them because of their service to the Lord and their fruitfulness in their life. So it's being held at this event, which was being held outside of San Antonio in what they call the hill country. I'm saying that as an excuse for why it was so hard to find, okay? <laughs> so we got our new rental car. We had our rental car map, which I'm not recommending. And we had our directions, our actually just the address of the place. So we started tr- making our way there. And my husband, who's really pretty gifted in geography and maps, um, was helping us along that. He was driving, and I was supposed to be the helpful navigator. So we made our way for about 20 minutes, and we weren't getting any closer. We knew we were lost. So we made stop number one for directions, a convenience store. We stopped at the convenience store, got directions. We tried those directions on for size for about 20 minutes, to which we realized we're still hopelessly lost. So that led to stop number two at a gas station to get directions. We got directions. We got in our car. We went for about 15 minutes, realizing we're still hopelessly lost. By this time, we're 45 minutes at least late for the event that we're supposed to be leading. So we stop at number three stop. This is a second convenience store. And we get directions again. Yes, it's true. You can beat your head against that wall multiple times. That's what we did. We got directions. We started in, and after about 15 minutes, we were like, we are so hopelessly lost. How are we going to find this place? We called the group, which were hilariously laughing at us when we told them that we were lost. And when we hung up the phone, I don't know, we just glanced at our dashboard, and we realized that sticking out the middle of the dashboard was this system called the GPS. (laughs) We punched the address in. We found our place. Within 15 minutes, we'd arrived at our destination, to which we spent the next couple hours being cheerfully harassed, I might say, by our colleagues as we celebrated the grand event. They had done a fine job of leading it for the first hour and 15 minutes that we were late. Well, as helpful as a GPS is, to really benefit from it, you have to engage it, and you have to respect it. That is, you have to believe that what it's telling you is the right thing so that you'll go there. Today, we're going to talk about the ultimate foolproof, literally, GPS for the journey of a lifetime. That's God. How we engage 
him and respect him in our journeys makes all the difference. There was a guy in the Bible who understood this well, even as a young man. His name was Solomon, and he's the editor and primary author of the book that we're going to be going through for this series, the book of Proverbs, for our summer road trip. Now, Proverbs is actually an answer to prayer. Yes, it's true. In 1 Kings 3, you can read the story of the prayer that got this whole book started. You see, Solomon had just become king, following in the footsteps of his father, King David. And when he was made king, he had a dream. And in that dream, the Lord came to him and said, Ask me for whatever you want, and I'll give it to you. Now, how many of you would sign up for that dream right about now? Yes. But God really did come and ask him this. And in his dream, he responded to God this way. He said, I'm just a little child. I don't know how to govern this great people of yours. So give me a wise and discerning heart so that I can lead with justice and fairness. Your people. Well, God was so thrilled at that prayer request. I mean, that was awesome to him because he asked for something for others and not for himself. And God said, I'm not only going to give you the wisdom that you ask for, I'm going to give you wealth and honor and respect galore. And if you continue to follow me, you'll actually get a long life to boot. So God was thrilled with his request. And in that, he made Solomon the wisest man who ever lived apart from his son, Jesus Christ, of whom it's said in Colossians 2, dwell all the treasures, hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge. They all reside in the person of Jesus Christ. But apart from him, as far as mortal men go, Solomon was and still is considered the wisest man that ever lived. Now, we're not talking about IQ here. Wisdom is something different. You can be really intelligent and still live a shipwrecked life. But we're talking about the wisdom of God. So uh, Solomon understood this. Now, Proverbs then is a compilation of some of the wisdom of him and some of his wise friends. Also, you'll see some of their names mentioned as we go through the book. But these are just some of the Proverbs. He actually wrote many more, over a thousand wise sayings of Proverbs. Ecclesiastes is another one of his books of wisdom. Song of Songs is another one of his books of wisdom. So as one of the books of wisdom in that section of God's library, his word, there's three things that are true about this book. First of all, it's going to be practical, not theoretical. So if you like to talk just ideas and theories and philosophy which is fun and has a lot of purpose in our relationship with Jesus, that's not what this is going to be about this summer. Because Proverbs is very much the everyday stuff of life. That's what it addresses as a wisdom piece of literature. Secondly, it's filled with truisms. That means sayings that are generally true, but there are exceptions. But tucked into some of those truisms that you'll see are also some wonderful promises. And next week, Kevin, our student ministries pastor, is going to bring you a wonderful message on one of those promises. But in addition to that, it's principles, not methods. I think we know the difference in that. There can be one principle and a lot of methods to accomplishing or applying that principle in our lives. So we're going to be looking at some principles. But the one big goal of the book of Proverbs is wisdom that would all get a lot smarter. Now, at a casual glance, Proverbs can kind of seem like a series of fortune cookie fortunes, you know, that you just pull out of that cookie and read. Maybe a little smarter than some of those, but still a lot like that. But it's more helpful to understand it as a book that's constructed in categories 
underneath which he talks about a lot of different things. So if we divide it out, these sayings, into categories. So it talks about parenting. It talks about money. It talks about stewardship. It talks about food and drink. It talks about work ethic. It talks about men. It talks about women. It talks about leadership. And on and on. There are so many categories of wisdom within this. So it's really cool when you read through Proverbs to kind of make your categories and hook those verses underneath the categories that are being talked about. That's a clearer way to think about it. Now this summer, we're going to talk about four of the categories that are going on in Proverbs. The first is in this first few weeks, we're going to talk about hard issues relating to God that come straight out of Proverbs. But the next few weeks after that, we're going to talk about friendships and communication and sexuality. Those are just four of the categories under the big umbrella, the big one that overrides the whole book of wisdom, getting smarter. So you might say, well, where is God in all of this, all of this practical stuff? Well, front and center, because apart from him, there really is no wisdom. And that's why Solomon was so smart, even as a young man. Because he had to know one thing. He knew who to turn to if he needed wisdom. And that's who he turned to. He turned to God and asked him for it. He started smart, if you will. Let's read Proverbs 1, verses 1 through 7. And the Bible's there underneath your chair in front of you. It's page 449. If you'd like to follow along that way, or you can read it on the screen as I read from Proverbs 1, verses 1 through 7. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, for gaining wisdom and instruction, for understanding words of insight, for receiving instruction in prudent behavior, doing what is right and just and fair, for giving prudence to those who are simple, knowledge and discretion to the young. Let the wise listen and add to their learning, and let the discerning get guidance for understanding proverbs and parables, the sayings and riddles of the wise. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge or wisdom, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. So right off the bat, we see that there's four groupings of people, four people, groups of people that he mentions distinctly that the book is for. First of all, the young. It says that the young will get wisdom and discretion. Wisdom is uh, that we're looking at, getting wiser about the situation, but discretion is what helps you know how to apply it, how to put it into practice. So for the young, they'll get to do that. For the simple, they're going to become wise. They're going to learn how to live right. Now the word for simple there, this is uh, one of three words used in Proverbs for fool. So I'm sure you're all ready to identify with that category, right? Yeah, that's my, my one of the four there. No. But that is who the book is written for. The third group is the wise. It says that they'll get even wiser if they read it. And the fourth group is the discerning or the understanding, the ones who have a lot of understanding and insight into life. And it says those people will get guidance. Okay, I like to sum it up this way. What it's really telling us is that you're never going to outgrow or outsmart the book of Proverbs. That it is good for all times, all ages, wherever you find yourself in life. It's a great book to look at. But the big idea of the entire book is stated in verse 7, and it's where we want to talk today. Verse 7 tells us that there's two categories of people on planet Earth. The wise and the foolish. And there's one thing that distinguishes us and puts us in either one category or the other. What distinguishes the wise is that they fear the Lord. That's the only difference. 
And it makes all the difference. You see, the fear of the Lord is the beginning to solving any of life's issues so we can really enjoy our journey. We really can live smarter, not harder, with the fear of the Lord in our lives when we engage and respect God. So what does it really mean when we say fear the Lord? That word fear there, it doesn't mean terror or to be frightened like you're sitting in, some of, in front of some horror movie or the stories you used to scare each other with as a child. It's not that kind of fear. It's that reverence, that respect, that awe, that appreciation, that humility, the honor that we have that's elicited when we experience or are exposed to the wonder, the majesty, the amazing of God. That's what it means to fear, the sublime, the sacredness of God that stirs in us this respect. So what are some things we do to show respect in our culture? Because, you know, respect is a big topic in every school classroom nowadays. It's one of several rules, if not more, on a board or on a sign somewhere in a school classroom. Respect others. They'll usually put it that way. What does that mean? What does respect mean? Because nowadays, that's a little harder to find sometimes in our culture. Here's some things we do when we respect someone. It affects how we look at them. We, we make eye contact when we respect someone. We look at them full on. We're attentive to what they say, and we give them time to say what they want to say. I think most of us have been taught by our moms, even if we're faulty in our practice, that interrupting is disrespectful because it doesn't give the other person time to say what they want to say. Now, Rory McIlroy just won the U.S. Open, 23-year-old from Ireland. And if he was up here in front of us today, those of you who went on the golf outing would give him time to share about his golf swing and to talk to you about yours. And you'd be attentive to what he said because you respect him in that body of knowledge. Well, we're also sensitive to the feelings of people that we respect, to what they care about, what they feel about the things that are going on. We dress in appropriate ways, taking into consideration the perspective of someone else and their viewpoint on that. Sometimes we even step aside and let them go first because we respect them so much. And as in with the president or as in the mother of the bride leads the way at the wedding yesterday. And what do we do when the bride begins to enter the room? Everyone rises. That's a symbol of respect and honor. This is her day. We're here to honor her. So, Anne, you might be saying, uh, what does that have to do with fearing, respecting the Lord? Well, because just like we show respect for people, fearing the Lord, showing him that reverence, respect, humility, honor, and appreciation that he's due is going to show up in everything that we say and do. All these little things that we just mentioned. We think it's some big gargantuan move. But it's in these everyday things. And so I thought, we're going to take a hip, a, a skip, a hop, and a jump through what I call the family photo album in the Bible. And we're going to take a look at five family snapshots of five people. Abraham, Noah, Job, some midwives, and yes, we even threw in a criminal. Because you can't have a good family photo album without a criminal or two, Right? I mean, this has got to be real, okay? None of us have perfect stories, do we? You know, maybe it's your picture in the album that's bringing that color, you know, to it. I I think my picture could at some points in my life. So let's look at family photo number one, Abraham. 
The fear of the Lord holds nothing back. How does Abraham show us that? Well, in Genesis 22, it tells an amazing story. See, Abraham had been promised a son by his wife, Sarah, who had been barren most of their married life. And so late in life, close to the age of 99, she bore this son, Isaac, and he was the son of promise. He was an answer to prayer, like some things in our life. But in Genesis 22, God asks him to do an amazing thing. He said, I want you to go to the region of Moriah, go up on a mountain, I'll show you there, and I want you to sacrifice your son as a burnt offering to me. I'm like, boing, you know. If you're not familiar with your Bible, that story, that story can kind of make your blood run cold. You know, you wonder what's going on here. Well, he gets to the mountain, he builds the altar, he puts his son on it, and he's ready to slay him. And God intercepts him and intervenes. And he says this to Abraham in verse 12 of chapter 22 in Genesis. Now I know that you fear God because you've not withheld from me your son your only son. He's saying, now I know that you fear me because you haven't even withheld the good stuff in your life. The answered prayers, the promise that I fulfilled to you. You've not withheld that from me. You even brought that to me. The fear of the Lord holds nothing back. Just like Abraham, fearing the Lord is surrendering everything in our lives to God, even the good stuff. That job that you want to take, but God's redirecting your life. Jared and I have a friend, a dear friend named Dave, who got his master's in physics. He was going to be a physicist. You know, God had the audacity to tell him, no, you're going to plant a church and leave a career as a physicist. And he did, and he planted one in the Tri-Cities area where there's a lot of what? Physicists. Just an awesome thing. But you see, he had to give that accomplishment to God, the good stuff of his life to God. That's what Abraham tells us. And maybe it's that not going back to school like you want to do because your spouse or your kids need you right now. And that's your primary assignment. And God's talking to you and saying, not yet, not yet. Maybe that's the good stuff. See, there's nothing wrong with going back to school. But maybe God's saying, that's not the time right now. I want you to do this. And we get to be like Abraham and bring that to the Lord. You know, there's a couple in the church, and they are doing their dream business. And they met with us last week. And it was so cool to hear how they've been praying. They have their dream business, and they've been praying, God, we know you gave us this business. Show us how you want to use this for the kingdom. She... It's been her dream to do this. She loves getting to do it, but she put it in God's hands. And you know what? They shared with us what God had shown them, the idea that he'd given them for using it for the kingdom. They were a lot like Abraham here. And now I know that you fear the Lord because you've not withheld your son, your only son. Only you fill on the blanks. You've not withheld your business, your dream business. Thomas Merton, who is a contemporary monk and did a lot of thinking and spending a lot of solitude with the Lord, wrote these words to the Lord before he died. All I want, Jesus, is more and more to abandon everything to you. The longer I live, the more I realize I don't know where I'm going. I need you to lead me. And Abraham was willing to even let God lead him with the good stuff, not just hand off his troubles give him the best stuff in his life. When we have the fear of the Lord, we hold nothing back. 
Family photo number two, the Hebrew midwives. This is a fun story found in Exodus, the first chapter, this little snapshot, real brief little account. The king of Egypt was getting mighty worried because those Israelites that they held in captivity were really good at reproducing. They were having babies right and left. And as they multiplied, their numbers became a force to be reckoned with. And so he had an idea. I'm going to intervene on these guys, and we're going to have all the boy babies killed. And that'll keep them from reproducing. That'll eventually affect the numbers, as you might think. So he ordered the Hebrew midwives to kill every boy baby when it came out. But here's what it says they did in Exodus 1, verse 17. It said, the midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. The fear of the Lord values God's approval above men's approval. You see, every single one of us fears someone, seeks the approval of someone, wants to emulate someone, wants to please someone with every decision that we make. That someone can even include ourselves. And when we do that, we replace God with people, whether it's peers or spouses or bosses or leaders or girlfriends or boyfriends. It's still replacing God when we want to please them or ourselves. Now, if we're a student, we call it peer pressure. And if we're an adult, we call it people-pleasing or codependency. And often this desire to please people more than God, is expressed in what I like to call the everyday moments of life, not just those big decisions. In fact, it sometimes starts here. It's that story that we go ahead and share to get a laugh or to boost others' impression of us, even though we know it's going to make somebody else look bad in the process, or it includes topics or language that are offensive to God. It's that decision that we decide not to have the crucial conversation with someone that we know God wants us to have because we don't want them to be mad at us. We don't want them to be displeased with us. It might be pretending that something didn't really happen so you won't rock the boat in your relationship with that person. Even though honest communication is really a part of love and respect and something that God really loves to see. She was laying on a bed in the clinic having an ultrasound, looking at the picture of her baby on the screen. A prerequisite for having the abortion that was scheduled shortly thereafter. She looked at the image and she said, bye-bye, baby. While across town in a whole nother facility was a mom who just handed her newborn child off to a loving family who could care for her in a way that she didn't feel capable of doing yet, given where she was at in her life. So who is pleasing, being pleased with these decisions? The fear of the Lord seeks God's approval, chooses to obey God rather than men, and seeks his approval higher and above and beyond anyone else. Proverbs 29, verse 25, something that, prayed for our whole ministry life for us is the fear of man brings a snare but he who trusts in the lord will be kept safe the fear of man always brings a snare 
That's what it's telling us, that it is a trap to seek the approval of men and women. But you'll be kept safe if your fear, if your greatest respect, if the greatest approval in your life is directed toward the Lord. The fear of the Lord values God's approval above men's. Let's take a look at family photo number three, our friend Noah. Now, for those of you newer to your Bibles, Noah was a guy asked at a particular time in history, interestingly, to build a gargantuan-sized boat. Might be the biggest one prior to that time. But more interesting than that, he built a boat because God had told him there was going to be 40 days and 40 nights of rain, and he was going to flood the entire earth. Now, Hebrews 11, verse 7, tells us what was so unusual about Noah and his fear of the Lord. Hebrews eleven seven says this, By faith, Noah, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family when warned about things not yet seen. Now, when it says warned about things not yet seen, they mean literally never before seen. Because when Noah got this little word from the Lord, he had never seen rain. There was a mist that came up from the ground that watered the earth prior to that time. There had never been a flood. So God came and talked to him about something he'd never seen happen. But you know what? This is Noah in holy fear took God at his word. Because the fear of the Lord takes God at his word. When he says something, we believe that he's going to do it. That's what Noah did. He respected God enough to know that he was going to do what he said he would do. And he better act upon it. Even though it was something that had never been done before. He was willing to be considered a fool for God. Because he had so much respect, so much humility, so much reverence for the God of the universe. That he took him at his word. Do you take God at his word when he speaks to you? When we respect and honor and revere God, we not only listen to what he says, but we act on it. Now, you might think I'm going to tell a grandiose story here, but I'm not. I'm going to talk about the small impressions that God makes, where he comes and whispers to you, where he impresses you to do something, because that's taking God at his word. I have one that happened in my life early on that's been my little alarm that reminds me how important it is to take God at his word whenever I get a word from him. And it happened when I was in college. I came home. My parents' home was situated close to the high school and the community pool, and really just, like, right next door. And I was there visiting, and I heard that a friend, a swim team friend of mine, Greta, was working there that summer. I hadn't seen her for a year. She had seemed kind of open to Christ. Her parents had been immigrants from outside the U.S., made friends with her, gotten to share with her, but she didn't know Jesus yet. And so I felt that God was just impressing me. This was like out of the blue, just compelling me. Go to the pool and talk to Greta. Talk to her about the Lord and see if she's ready to receive me. Do you think that I obeyed? Do you think that I took God at his word? No, I didn't. I didn't operate in holy fear at that time. And that night, Greta was driving home late at night. And she had a one-car accident. She fell asleep at the wheel, and she was thrown from her vehicle and killed instantly. Now, that doesn't happen every time we don't follow the Lord's impression. But the lesson for me was clear. You see, the God of the universe gives you a nudge, and we treat it like it's eh, optional. I can debate it. I can take a poll on it. I can see if my best friend would do it. I can see if my spouse would do it. 
But taking God at his word is to believe it, no matter how new and fresh and unusual he asks us to do, and then act on it. And that's what I got to do with my friends. So a couple of days ago, I had an impression from the Lord. Just He said, take a walk with me. Let's talk. So I was taking a walk around the park by our house, and it's about a quarter mile around, and I was just going around and around talking to him, and I don't know what people thought that were watching me. I tried not to be too loud or anything, and I no, I didn't stop on any street corners and hold up a sign like turn or burn or something like that. You know, I didn't do that. I just walked around that park and just talking to him, listening to him, just the things. Tons of people came to mind, people to pray for here at E, and just just listening to him about different things. And just a wonderful conversation. Oh, after I finished, I don't know, I did a mile or a mile and a quarter, my little gold brain here. And at that time, I thought, okay, I'm done. And he said, no, let's keep walking. Let's go down this street. So I went down that street. I did a whole other loop, and we just talked and walked. And I'm here to tell you, nothing else happened. No, I don't have a big word to deliver from you. He didn't give me a promise for the rest of my life. But I got to have a conversation with the God of the universe for about 25 minutes as we walked and talked together because I took him at his word. In this case, his word was an invitation, just a nudge. Nothing like do it or else. I had another nudge a couple weeks ago to begin praying for this man who's been very difficult in Jared and I's life and pray for his transformation because he has some mental issues and some things that are causing a lot of these problems. But he has to get help. But God said, pray for his transformation. And I shared with Jared that I'd begun praying this. Well, guess what happened? Things got worse, not better. You ever done that? But here's the difference. Because I'd responded to God. I took him at his word. I have a whole different context for things getting worse. I know that that's not the end of the story. Because God had me pray for his transformation. That means that God has a plan for this man. And his plans are good. So when I have this bad behavior happening and multiplying, I understand it in this context. God spoke to me over here before this happened. He has a plan. He's going to help this guy. And so my whole experience with it has not been near as, like, frustrating. It's changed the whole way. I have a lot more joy in the journey because of God's little nudge. The fear of the Lord takes God at his word. Family photo number four, Job. The fear of the Lord goes the distance. Now, Job has a whole book in the Bible written about him, 42 chapters. And um, if you've ever seen the insurance ad where mayhem visits somebody, okay, that's what happened to Job. I think that's a really good depiction, only it was kind of like multiplied mayhems. So chapter 1 of Job, it says this of him, that he was a man who feared God and shunned evil. So the devil comes and pays God a visit and says, well, yeah, in verse 9, does, does Job fear God for nothing? It's like, sure, he fears you because his life is great. It's going great. He's wealthy. He's a man of high standing in the community. He's got a great wife, great kids. What's not to love about God when your life's going perfect? Let me at him, God, and I'll show you how much he'll fear you. And God let him go and gave him some boundaries. And that's when mayhem came into Job's life. And there's a whole bunch of chapters of that. But the end of the story, chapter 42... Job went the distance in his fear of God because he says this, Now I know, God, 
that no plan of yours can be thwarted. No matter what kind of disappointment, no matter what kind of pain, no matter what kind of tragedy besets me, you are the God of the universe who cares for me, who loves me, who walks with me through the lowest of the lows and the highest of the highs. And his respect for God was greater than ever. The devil didn't win. He lost it because Job didn't fear God for nothing. Because, you see, the fear of the Lord goes the distance. So we, too, can say that. So where hasn't life worked out for you like you hoped or anticipated? The day you lost your job or the retirement portfolio that lost half of its value or the house that you're in upside down or the spouse that left you or the debilitating disease that you've contracted or your teen's acting out and is out of control. The question about the fear of the Lord there is, so what was your response in that time? We can be like Job. If we fear the Lord, we can go the distance and still enjoy the journey at the end. We can say with him, no plan of yours, God, can be thwarted. The fear of the Lord goes the distance, which brings us to our final picture. I told you the criminal and the family album, always the most colorful, and I want to tell you, they bring us the most hope when they tell their picture because it's never too late to get smart and begin to fear the Lord. You know in Luke 23 is the account of the two criminals, one crucified on one side of Jesus, one crucified on the other side of Jesus. Now, one criminal was hurling insults at Jesus, saying, hey, you saved others, why don't you save yourself? And while you're at it, Help us out here, too. And he went on, just hurling insults. Finally, the other criminal, I mean, I can't imagine this because they're hanging on a cross, right? The other criminal goes, don't you fear God? This guy didn't do anything wrong, and yet he's got the same sentence as us. We deserve what we're getting. Don't you fear God? Then he turned to Jesus, and he said, Jesus, remember me today when you come into your kingdom. And what was Jesus' response? No, you rotten soul. You wasted most of your life. You did a lot of bad stuff. Why should I let you in? Why should I have relationship with you? Why should I embrace you? And welcome? No, that's not what he said. Here's what he said. Immediate. No hesitation. Today, you're going to be with me in paradise. That's good news for somebody today. Where you have not been walking with God. Where you've been seeking the approval of men and just ignoring God in your life. You can know what the criminal tells us is that you can, in that quick, with a change of heart, be embraced by your heavenly Father and by his Son, Jesus Christ. You can be completely forgiven because of his death on the cross for your sins. And you can live a new life of love, acceptance, and forgiveness and enjoy the journey. And today... You can get smart by beginning to fear the Lord. It's never too late, as long as you have breath, to get smart.